You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. John chapter 9, be reading verses 1 through 41. John 9, 1 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, that he was born blind, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened, has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received, had received a sight until they called the parents of the man who had received a sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, They called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, You are his disciple. But we are are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. 
Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you through Christ, bowing before him now as it were, running after him like those two beggars, pleading, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Hearing, perhaps, as they did, the question, what would you have me do for you? We would respond, let our eyes be open. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your word. Father, for those who are blind... May they see the light of the glory of our God in the face of your Son. By your Spirit now. In the preaching of your word. For your people. Oh, how often, even still, we let the cares of this world. We let the allurements of sin distract our eyes from Christ. Draw our gaze to Him. May we see His glories afresh in a way that arrests our attention and changes us and conforms us more so to His image. Transfigure the written word, so that we see something of the glory of the living word now. That he might be honored as you are honored. That we might say, your people, anew and afresh, Lord, we believe. And that those who are right now blind, By the time the benediction is pronounced, they might see so that the benediction might come to them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. In Christ's name, we plead this before your throne of grace now. Amen. Jesus' interactions with the blind man frame this narrative. In between those two interactions, Jesus is absent from all the other happenings in this text. And yet, He's central to everything that happens, even though absent. Our attention in John has been so intensely and exclusively focused on Jesus that This absence, once you notice it, is startling. The camera has been zoomed in on him. His person and work have been so amazing and so stunning that once you realize the camera has panned away to focus on the blind man and the legal proceedings of the Jews, once you... Once you 
realize this. It's startling, and it heightens then those two interactions with Jesus that frame this, and you begin to realize each time Jesus deals with this man, he receives sight. How gloriously different are Jesus' interactions with this blind man on each side, on each side of this narrative where he's receiving sight, and the blind man's interactions with the Jews where they are blind. Two times Jesus gives this man sight, and the climactic work of Jesus comes with the second interaction. When the camera pans back around to Jesus, you are not disappointed. It's not a lesser glory in happening. This is the sixth sign that we encounter in the book of John. It's the sixth of that first half of John, chapters 1 through 12, that we refer to as the book of signs. Seven signs come in this book. So this is the penultimate sign. John has selected his signs carefully. John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John has selected his signs carefully and consider how these signs swell in glory. We begin with the quiet sign. Jesus turning the water into wine. Only a few are in on the glory that's being displayed with that sign. The second sign is Jesus healing the official son. And you remember, Jesus did that sign from a distance. It's not the kind of sign that He did it. Everyone saw that He did it and they marveled at it. He does it from a distance. It's when When the official arrives back, that then there's marveling on his part and as he shares what's happened. Third, there's the healing of the invalid man at the pool of Bethesda. Fourth, you have the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Fifth, you have that cluster of signs where Jesus walks on the water, the storm ceases once he gets into the boat, and then they immediately arrive at their destination. And now, with the healing of this blind man, I hope you will see by the time we finish with this text that we have not taken a step back, that there's something of a greater glory that's meant to be communicated to you, that these signs swell in splendor, that this sign is surpassed only by the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus, which is an anticipation of the sign of signs, which is the exclusive focus of the second half of John, the sign of signs being the death and resurrection of our Lord. So John has chosen these signs, he's chosen them carefully, there's a swelling of glory, and he's chosen them, he tells us expressly that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in His name, John 20 and 31. Believing is a kind of spiritual sight. John has recorded these signs so that you might see. He's recorded this sign concerning a blind man receiving sight so that blind men might see. This is also the last sign of what we've seen is the festival cycle. John chapters 5 through 10, the festival cycle. There are four feasts. Four signs interwoven with those four feasts. And in them we see open hostility towards Jesus grow. Since chapter 5, all of Jesus' interactions with the Jews in Jerusalem have had a particularly legal connotation and atmosphere to them. There's been a lot of talk of witness testimony and judgment, and that's sustained throughout this chapter as well. But whereas prior, all the legal proceedings were with Jesus directly, 
Now an additional witness is called in. Nonetheless, it will be clear it is still Jesus who they believe is on trial. And nonetheless, it's Jesus still who is the judge. And the judgment he deals out is one of giving sight and leaving men to their blindness. So with the Feast of Booths, just having recently ended, Jesus passes by and he notices this man who has been blind since birth. And that's key to everything that unfolds here. He's been blind, not just blind, but blind since birth. That is why the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? If he was just blind somewhere along his life as a child, as an adult, the answer, you speculate, would have been clear to them how they would have reasoned. Well, he must have done something. But because he was born blind, they ask, who sinned? He or his parents. They share the same bad premises as Job's miserable comforters. Such is the leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus warned the disciples about after he fed the 4,000 in Matthew 16, 6. It will be explicit that this is the leaven, the teaching, the theology of the Pharisees in verse 34. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? Think through this in reverse. They look at this man born blind and they reason, who sinned? He or his parents that he was born blind. Then, according to that kind of logic, what would be the answer to, why do you prosper? Why are you healthy? Why are you blessed? He's blind because of his sin. Why are you healthy? Because of my righteousness. Because of my law-keeping. A key. The, the key ingredient to the poison of the prosperity gospel is legalism. And rather than just instantly seeing how off-putting that is, do a bit of self-examination now. And think in your mind, what is it that materially, health-wise, what kind of blessing is it that I often find myself looking down on others because they don't have? This is not something we're immune to. It's a leaven you must be aware of. It's in the loaf, consistently war against it. But there is a truth in the lie that we need to recognize. We need not deny it. And the truth is this. All suffering is due to sin. All suffering is due to sin. All human suffering has its root in Eden. It was planted when the forbidden fruit was cast aside. And from that has sprung the curse. All human suffering is rooted there. Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man and death spread and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. The failure of the pharisaical prognosis is that without any grounds, it leaps from the general to the particular. All suffering is due to sin. That's true. And it's good news that that's true because there's one who has come to deal with sin, therefore he can deal with all suffering. All suffering is due to sin. That's true. 
That's the general truth. The problem is the particular application of it. Your suffering is due to your sin. We have no grounds to make that kind of application. There is a great chasm between those two statements. Jesus answers that this blindness is not because of sin, but for glory. It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The answer for this man's blindness is not in the past, it's in the future. It is not related to man's sin, but God's glory. God aims to display His works in this man. And the word works is critical to understanding what Jesus is saying whenever He says that these works, uh, this is... This is so that, verse 3, the works of God might be displayed. Understanding what he means by displayed and understanding what he goes on to say in verses 4 through 5 as well. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In this courtroom that we've been in since chapter 5, the, a critical piece of Jesus' case has been concerning works. So John 5, 17, they've questioned him about healing the invalid man on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. And he goes on to explain The Father loves the Son and shows the Son all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father, honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent Him. So the works of God being done in this man so that the works of God might be displayed mean people marveling at Jesus. This is done. The Father is giving works to the Son so that people might marvel. And the marveling they're meant to do is one in which Jesus is honored just as the Father is honored. This is the work that's set before Jesus. Why is this man blind? So that blind men might see Jesus. This is the work before Jesus set before him while it is day. What is the night? We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Then look at verse 5. It tells you when night is. This night that is coming. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Night is when Jesus is no longer in this world. It's a reference to that hour that is growing more and more prominent as we advance. That hour when the sky will grow dark. And Jesus will be laid in the tomb. Jesus has works set before him that the Father gives him that testify of him. And he works them while it's day. Night is coming. This is why Jesus, whenever he speaks of that hour having come in John 17, he also says, John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world. The cross is so prominent to him that he speaks of it as if it's already happened. I'm no longer in the world. We'll soon hear Jesus tell the crowds, John 12, 35-36. The light is among you for a little while longer. 
Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. It's light right now, Jesus says. There are works to do. Night is coming. And so with this understanding, he spits on the ground, he makes mud, he anoints the man's eyes, verse 6. Why does Jesus do that? He doesn't need to do that. This is peculiar. Why this way? I think there are a number of answers. Let's begin with the most speculative. First, there's something about Jesus speaking the words, the the word works, talking about works of God. And then speaking of The light. And then taking mud in his hands and applying it to this man's eyes. There's something about all this that recalls Genesis 1 and 2. New creation. Second, because of the mud, this man would need to wash his eyes. It wouldn't be kind to say, now open them with the mud on them. So because of the mud, he has to go and wash. And because he has to go and wash, Jesus is then absent until the next interaction. This means things proceed the way that they do, and they proceed the way that they do so that the works of God might be displayed in this man. Third, just as with the healing of the invalid man, you notice we don't learn that it's the Sabbath until the Jews, the leaders, get involved and the controversy really gets stirred up. And just as with that invalid man, the real problem was not that Jesus said, get up, but get, rise, take up your bed, and walk. The taking up of his bed on the Sabbath was the big issue. And so here, you'll notice there's a lot of interest in how did Jesus do this. And so it's this making of mud, applying it to his eyes, telling him to go and wash that are central to the controversy. And then fourth, Jesus, who it has been prominent that he's been referenced to as the one who's been sent by the Father. So Jesus, the sent one, sends this man to sent. Siloam, meaning sent. Jesus, the sent one, sends this man to sent, and he receives his sight. First interaction. The second interaction, Jesus, the sent one, will send the man to sent himself, and he will receive sight. As one might expect upon returning to, you presume, his home, because the neighbors notice him, and those who had seen this man. Upon returning, he, he sees, they notice this, and they're asking, is not this the man? Some say yes, some say, eh, he looks like him. All the while, this man is saying, I'm the man. I'm the man. I am the man. It's me. And it reminds you, this echoes Jesus' interactions with the Jews in all these chapters previously. Who are you? Jesus answers, just who I've been telling you from the beginning. Is He the Christ? He is. He's not. Jesus keeps telling them who He is and they don't hear. Insisting that He's the man, they ask, how were His eyes open? Verse 10. And He answers, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And then they asked, verse 12, Where is he? Now why do they want to know? Is it because they're attracted to Jesus? Or is it because they want to arrest Jesus? Are their motives good or are they bad? Why do they want to know where Jesus is? And two reasons are suggested by the context And neither one of them are good. First, there is the motive of fear that could be involved. 
In 7.13, we saw that Jesus' talk was being policed. No one spoke openly of Him for fear of the Jews. And soon we'll see that this fear grips this man's parents. For fear of the Jews, they give an answer, not wanting to be cast out of the synagogue. Second, and the greater motive that I think is involved here would be their antagonism towards Jesus. 719, you remember Jesus told the crowds, or He asked them, why do you seek to kill me? And they respond, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And it's not that long later, though, that we're told opinion was divided on Jesus. And those who didn't believe of them, some of them were seeking to arrest Him, which would mean bring Him to the Pharisees. And that's exactly what this looks like. Most recently, this is just should be fresh in view as you're reading chapter 9, chapter 8, especially the way 8 is ended, should be fresh on your mind. And we saw even among those Jews who did believe in Him, as Jesus begins to push the truth of who He is upon them and the truth of who they are upon them, they take up stones to cast at Jesus. And so now it is that they bring him to the Pharisees, and now it is that we're told by John, it's the Sabbath. This informs us how things are going to proceed. It explains their interest in why they ask how. Verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And you get something of this man's annoyance at this point. And it's actually his annoyance that begins to endear you to him even more so, is it not? How? He put mud on my eyes, I washed, I see. And now you see who it really is that's on trial. Some of them, hearing how this is done, say, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Others, given an alternate ruling, an opinion. How can a man who is a sinner do such things? We wonder if Nicodemus was part of this group. The one voice of reason speaking into this den of folly once more. The division among the Pharisees echoes that division that we saw among the people earlier. But that division that we saw among the people works so that this alternate opinion soon fades. And it's this antagonistic stance towards Jesus that's the loudest. Well, with the division at hand, they turn to the blind man to solve the dilemma, as it were. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? What a, what a thought. Ask the man who actually had interactions with him. And he answers... He is a prophet. Now, this man has not said all, but he said a great deal more than the experts. But they don't like this answer. And so we read, verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They ask how. They don't like the answer. And so, the solution, deny that he's ever been blind. But this becomes hard after they've called in his parents, verse 19. They have two questions for his parents. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? With great discretion, they answer, he is our son. We don't know how. We don't know who. And they say this for fear of the Jews, we're told. These men have already sentenced Jesus. They're just hunting for evidence now. And you notice their tactics of intimidation and pressure. But what this testimony of the parents most does, I believe, in this text, is it serves as a foil to highlight the boldness of their son. You notice their fear of the Jews and you've already sensed something of, of this man's uh, response towards them 
and it will only grow more, more glorious. Unlike the invalid man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda, there's, there's correlations here. Pools, healings, the legal trials that are surrounding them. Unlike that man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda, who the more he talks, the more we seem, the more interactions we have, we like him less and less. This man we love more and more. The Jews call him in for a second time, asking him to condemn Jesus with the most charged of language. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And what they're saying is, if you don't agree with us, you're blaspheming. And the man's answer begins with a spark. It ends with a bang. It has some spunk from the very beginning. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. He will reflect on this a lot. I think he already does know, but his answer just grows more bold as we go along. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And again, they want to dial in on how. You notice his answer is the kind of plainly spoken wisdom that makes the sophisticated look complexly foolish. So they dial again on how. And now his answer doesn't just have a zing, but a sharpness to it. I've told you already, and you would not listen. It's as though he says, I was blind, are you deaf? I've told you already, you wouldn't listen. It reminds us of Jesus' previous trials. I've been telling you. In a previous instance with the people, he rebukes them, asking, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The most potent word in this man's reply, it's a simple one. Do you also want to become his disciples? Or it's translated in, in some versions, do you too want to become his disciple? He could be saying this from a neutral standpoint, but that's not at all what this text hints at. He's saying, I'm his disciple. Do you too want to become one? Without having come to full faith in Jesus yet does not recognize everything Jesus is. Without having come to full faith, he has a whole lot more confidence in the prophet who has given him sight than the Pharisees who it seems would rather he had remained blind. So with that spicy remark, they revile the man. Verse 28, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. They are the poorest disciples Moses ever had. Jesus has already told them this. John 5, 45-47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They know God has spoken to Moses, but they don't know where this man comes from. And the irony is that that statement is totally true and totally false. They don't know where this man comes from. Well, in your previous trials and those of the people, you had some of them saying, we don't know where he comes, we won't know where the Christ comes from, but we know where this man comes from. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth. And then you had Nicodemus who said, do we, do we try a man without first hearing him and learning what he does? And they respond to him, search the scriptures. Does any prophet come out of Galilee? They know where he is from. But they don't know where he's from. And yet, they do again, still. Because Jesus has been bearing witness to it by the works given to him of his Father and by his words again and again. This is just a sampling 
of this particular point that Jesus has been making recently with them. Just a sampling, not every instance. John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. John 5, 36. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 7, 16. My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. John 7, 28 through 29. You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord, but he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me, John 8, 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me, John 8, 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me, John 8, 23. You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world, John 8, 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him, John 8, 44. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. They do not know where he came from, not because it has not been revealed, but because they do not want to see it. They are blind and they are culpably blind. Sinners, see yourself here. You're not just blind to Jesus, you want to be blind to Jesus. It's because you don't love him. But my prayer is, the word of God is working now. In the same way that it worked in this blind man. So that you have less and less attraction to the teachers and philosophers of this world who would turn you from Christ. And you're saying, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But there's something. There's something about him. They are so blind that this former blind man is amazed that they don't see. Verse 30. Why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. The implication of what he's going to say is, what he did speaks to where he came from. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You begin to see here why it is in this book of signs when we come to this penultimate sign, the sixth sign, we have not stepped back from the glory that's testified to in the feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on the water. Never has anything like this been heard of, this man says. We have a plethora of wonders and signs being done throughout the Old Testament. There's not one instance of man blind from birth receiving his sight. When we come to the New Testament, though, as a category, this is among the most prominent of signs we see. Matthew 9, 27 through 31. Matthew 12, 22 through 23. 15, 30 through 31. 21, 14. Mark 8, 22 through 26. Mark 10, 46 through 52. Luke 7, 21 through 22. You remember whenever John sent messengers to Jesus. Are you the one or should we look for another? John's faith faltering in this moment while he's in prison. And Jesus tells them, go tell them what you have seen and heard. And he gives a list of the marvels and wonders they've seen and heard. You remember what the first one is? The very first one. The blind receive their sight. This is a messianic hope 
especially as it's laid out in Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, 6-7. I am Yahweh. This is Yahweh speaking to His servant. The Messiah. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This blind man was born blind so that the blind might see. The works of God are being displayed before you in this record now so that if you are blind, you might see. And the sight, the sight that God by His Word wants you to behold is Himself in His Son. Not just that your eyes would be opened. That's a blessing. But so that your eyes would be open so that you would see Christ. That is blessedness altogether. The blindness of the Pharisees, though, is a culpable blindness. You were born in utter sin and would you teach us? They are deaf to the one who sees more clearly than they do. They revile him. But note what they've unwittingly done with the statement. You were born in utter sin. They have owned that he was born blind. And owning that he's born blind, what's the explanation? What's the testimony? Jesus did this. And nothing like this has ever been done. So, what to do now? Well, cast him out of the synagogue. Jesus, hearing that he's been cast out, finds him and asks him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And now this man, with grace equal to his grit, answers, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? There was this grace in his answer towards Jesus, a a humility in his answer towards Jesus that matches the grit and courage of how he spoke to these leaders. This man is being drawn of God, but he's not yet fully converted. But this speaks to what the work of God does in a person as he draws him to himself. There is a humility towards Jesus and a boldness towards men. And those with whom the Spirit works. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus beautifully answers. You have seen him. He's the one speaking to you. And this man proves now no longer blind. Lord, I believe. Now in each instance where this man addresses Jesus, he uses the same word of address. It's a word that can be translated, sir or Lord. It's a word that could be a polite form of address from one man to another. Sir. Or, It's a word that they would use to speak of the sovereign 
God of all man, Lord. It's plain that in the first instance, Jesus, this man is using a polite reference towards Christ. Sir, who is he? And in the second instance, he means he is God. Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The blind man sees and his second seeing is more wondrous than the first. (coughs) Jesus has just been speaking to the people about the bondage to sin that they are enslaved in so that they don't hear, they don't see. He's been telling them that they are the children of the devil. And this is true of all men. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were in bondage to our sin. We were kept in darkness by Satan. And Paul goes on to say that the reason why, as regarding the saints, that that is who they were is because they've been raised together with Christ by grace through faith. And how that operates, Paul makes plain when he tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, Paul is not saying, we, me with you Corinthians. He's saying, me as an apostolic minister, I have this mercy this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart since we have it by mercy. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word. How is it that this sight comes? It's not by human tampering and cunning and wisdom. It's not by a light show that people see the light. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, the Father, shines in the heart by His Spirit in the preaching of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And that's how blind men see. This is why this blind man was born blind. So that blind men might see. And the way they see is the object of what is seen. They are one and the same. Christ. This is why Jesus came. He came to bring judgment. This judgment, it's a judgment of salvation. A, a, a salvation that makes distinction. Verse 39, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. It's not a contradiction of John 3, 17. Didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. It's not a contradiction of John 12, 47. That Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He sent for salvation But as he's dealing out salvation, giving sight to those who are blind, there is a kind of judgment that comes in the wake of that. And those who in the face of that light say, we see, greater judgment has fallen on them because of that. Jesus causes the blind to see and he also causes the seeing self-professed to be blind. Prophet Isaiah received this calling. Everyone is keen on the first part of Isaiah chapter 6 and the calling of that prophet when he sees the Lord. We read in the Gospels that it's Jesus who Isaiah saw 
on the throne. And the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. Everyone loves that part. No one talks about Isaiah's calling that he received. Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Jesus refers to this passage when his disciples ask, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answers, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And then he quotes this text, but then he tells his disciples, But blessed are your eyes. Where they see, and your ears, where they hear. Dear sinner, this man was born blind, so that you being blind might see. And so I ask you, look into your heart, and hear the word of God asking you this. Hear Christ asking you this by His Spirit and by His word. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And that's as simple as if there's truly from the heart this answer. Lord, I believe. And I say to you, blessed are your eyes, for they see. If you've ever read the Scriptures and thought, oh, to see such wonders... Think so no longer. Many saw this blind man receive his sight. Few receive the second sight this blind man did. And that was the greater glory. To see Christ with the eyes of faith is greater than to see Christ wonders without them. But for the spiritually proud who remain obstinate that they see, Jesus pronounces them blind. Because you say you see, your guilt remains. Sin does cause blindness. Sin does cause blindness. And there's a direct correlation between fallen man's sin and his blindness. And the worst kind of sinful blindness is the kind that believes it sees. Who sinned that you are born blind? Adam and you. Who sinned that you are blind? Adam and you. Who was born and died so that you might see? Christ and Christ alone. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is He? He's the second Adam who came to live perfectly unto God, keeping the law in the place of sinners so that He might be the righteousness of all who would trust in Him. Who is He? He's the one who went to the cross, bearing the curse, enveloped in Darkness of God forsakenness and wrath and judgment so that sinners might be forgiven. Who is He? He's the one who came from the Father, returned to the Father, sits at His right hand, who will come again to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found so that sin and its effects will be no more. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of Man? And I say again to you, if you do, if you simply respond, Lord, I believe, blessed are your eyes, for they see. Let's pray. Holy Father, 
we cry out again. We cry out in confidence. We cry out knowing that the Word of God is powerful. It pierces. It's light. We cry out knowing that the Gospel is your power unto salvation. We cry out believing you have many people in the city. We cry out trusting that in the preaching of your word, you draw sinners to yourself. We cry out hopeful that blind eyes have been opened to see. And we pray that they would then follow you in obedience. They would publicly be courageous before men. Walking in obedience, they would be baptized, signifying they've risen with Christ. Father, it's our hope we would see this. We would see it more and more by your grace and by your spirit. All so that your son might be honored as you are honored. So that your works might be displayed. As blind Eyes are open to see the glory of Christ. In whose name we boldly bring this petition to your throne of grace now. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.